traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Conspiracy theories have always been around, but they haven't historically had as much cultural cachet as they have now. We ask why tall tales are edging into politics all over the world and what's to be done about them. And three years ago, our Beijing bureau chief returned to the city after two decades away. It's utterly transformed in all that time, but what struck him is how much its soundscape has changed. We stop and listen to an ever-shifting capital. First up, though. Brazil had been on edge in the run-up to mass rallies on Independence Day yesterday. President Jair Bolsonaro had called for his supporters to hit the streets, and they responded in at least 19 state capitals. The demonstrations were the largest since Mr. Bolsonaro took office in 2019. In the largest city, Sao Paulo, the crowd was estimated at 110,000. In the capital, Brasilia, the buildings of Congress had to be protected. The protests ended up being peaceful, despite Mr. Bolsonaro's railing against, among other things, the Supreme Court, which has resisted his attempts to push through new voting laws ahead of next year's elections. He told a crowd that only God will take me out of Brasilia. Plenty of numbers suggest that divine intervention won't be the deciding factor. COVID numbers, inflation, unemployment, and well over a hundred petitions to impeach him. It's an apparent show of strength by Jair Bolsonaro, but actually it's basically his weakness. Emma Hogan is our America's editor. He is tanking in the polls. There are a series of problems for him. He's dealing with some corruption scandals, which he denies. There's the pandemic, which has killed over a half a million people in Brazil. And there are economic issues now. So ahead of the elections next year, he wants to show that he has supporters. So he has called out hundreds of thousand people onto the streets. But actually, it's, it's a way for him to try and embolden his base in a time when he is incredibly unpopular in Brazil. And so what was the message when his supporters indeed came out? So the message was just a general rallying before the election. He said that from today, a new history will be written in Brazil. But he also lashed out at the judiciary. In particular, a judge called Alexander de Moraes. He said of this person, you know, we cannot accept that one person clouds our democracy. He said that you know, either the head of this power gets in line or the power can suffer you know, what we do not want. 
So sort of generalised threats towards the judiciary and basically trying to fire up his supporters. So why is he directing all of his ire at the judiciary? Bolsonaro has long claimed that the country's voting system is, is vulnerable to fraud. So in August, he claimed that there was fraud in Brazil's previous elections, and he wants to make it a paper voting system. Brazil's Supreme Electoral Court, in turn, has said that it will investigate the president for a bunch of things, including his attacks on the voting system. But it also includes abuse of office, improper use of official communication channels, corruption and fraud, all of which the president denies. So basically, he's he's being criticised on several different fronts at the moment. And he's returning those criticisms just by claiming that the judiciary is, in turn, corrupt or out to get him. And is that narrative working? Is Mr. Bolsonaro convincing people that, that something's fishy? I mean, his supporters certainly are standing by him. In Rio, one pro-Bolsonaro protester said that she was she was very happy to see that Brazil has got together for a new independence against the communist dictatorship of the judicial authorities. And it's not the case that there are particularly high levels of trust in institutions there. You know, in 2018, only 14% of Brazilians said they trusted the Supreme Court a lot. But at the same time, Mr. Bolsonaro's ratings are also falling. He's polling at less than 30%. This means whereas he might be able to attack these institutions, he also is coming under renewed pressure, not least because of the way that he's handled the pandemic. Well, we've talked a lot on the show before about how the pandemic has progressed in Brazil. I, I gather things haven't gotten any better. Now, Brazil has had a particularly bad pandemic. Over half a million people are dead. There have been questions about vaccine procurement and potential corruption scandals about that. Although at the beginning of the pandemic, there was some very generous monthly checks to poor people. They were slashed at the beginning of this year. So you're seeing the double whammy of the virus is still unchecked in the country in many respects. And people are also feeling really quite hard done by economically as well. The unemployment rate was 14% in the second quarter of this year. Inflation is up, particularly for staples like rice and sugar. Of 30 large economies tracked by the OECD recently, Brazil was the only one that didn't grow. So people are feeling the pinch on, on both sides. And so Mr. Bolsonaro's reaction to this, to, to fire up the base, to, to bring people out onto the streets, to, to denigrate the courts, to continue to, to, to poke at the voting system, there are a lot of parallels here uh, with, with the, the end of the Trump presidency. Yes, indeed. And those parallels have certainly been talked about a lot in the Brazilian media and elsewhere. Ahead of these protests, there's lots of worries that they were going to be violent. In the end, that didn't turn out to be the case. The most worrying moment was on the eve of them when some protesters pushed past a barricade. So we shouldn't over-egg these. They are big protests. They are worrying. And, and, you know, Bolsonaro, unlike Donald Trump, doesn't have the support of half of the population. He isn't doing well. Hundreds of thousands of people came out, but there are plenty of people who still don't like the president. But at the same time, it's still 13 months, the election. A lot could change in that time. And how do you see things progressing during those 13 months? Well, there are potentially going to be anti-Bolsonaro protests. They could, in turn, inflame his supporters more. It really depends on whether or not the president is impeached. It seems highly likely that at the moment his political rivals are keen just to see him fizzle out. But then, in turn, that raises the question of what will happen when it seems very likely he does lose the next election. So Brazil's institutions are fairly strong at the moment, but at the same time, 
the Bolsonaro era has has weakened people's trust in them. People are feeling really the effects of the pandemic and the economic problems. So it's looking terribly worrying that even if we should take some hope from the fact that these protests this week were not violent in the end. Thanks very much for joining us, Emma. Thanks, Jason. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. There's nothing new about conspiracy theories. It seems humans have been conjuring them and believing them as far back as history records. Those in living memory are stacking up, though, and they're getting weirder. From British author David Icke's musings that the world's powerful people are all secretly intergalactic lizards, to the not-so-dissimilar QAnon nonsense, in which the powerful are all cannibalistic pedophiles. The human impulse hasn't changed, but how those stories are shared and how they're put to use certainly has. I've been reporting from Congo on and off for about five or six years now. Daniel Knowles is an international correspondent for The Economist. And it is a country where people believe really quite incredible things. There are all sorts of conspiracy theories that spread around Congo, but in particular, they all kind of come down to this basic idea that everything bad that happens in Congo is part of an enormous foreign plot. Like what kind of plot? What did people there tell you? So in Kinshasa, I met a politician called Valentin Mabakeb. I met him at his house, actually, which is also his party headquarters. Valentin has been involved in the kind of Congolese opposition politics for decades, and he's a full buyer of these conspiracy theories. So he told me that Paul Kagame, who's currently the president of Rwanda, designed and organized the Rwandan genocide on his own and used this as an excuse to get American backing to come into Congo and invade it and break it up. The genocide of Rwanda was financed and organized by Kagame. He took the whole tour that he financed to kill all of them. And almost everything from the United Nations and the peacekeeping force in Congo to things like Ebola and COVID-19 even are kind of part of this whole plot. And there's, there's not a grain of truth in any of this. There's a grain of truth in it. Paul Kagame did actually launch a conspiracy to invade Congo in 1996, 1997, but he did not plan the Rwandan genocide. In fact, his rebel forces kind of took over Rwanda from the genocideers, and the reason they invaded was not really as part of some big plot to kind of take over Congo. It was to chase down the people who did commit the Rwandan genocide who'd gone to flee into Congo. So There's a grain of truth, but what's built on top of it, this kind of grand explanation of everything, doesn't really stand up. It's a kind of classic example of a conspiracy theory in that sense. It tries to explain everything with regard to the secret actions by shadowy elites who kind of control everything behind the scenes. In Congo, they call it Le Manoir, the Black Hand. 
And, and what consequences does it have that so many people believe that conspiracy theory in Congo? Well, what it contributes to is the fact that Congo has this incredibly messy, violent politics. People, when they think there's a kind of conspiracy against them, are more likely to get involved in ethnic violence. You know, it definitely sort of motivates attacks on Tutsi people in particular in the east of Congo. You also have things like when Ebola was rampant in the east of Congo, the idea that it wasn't real and was kind of part of this great big foreign plot kind of led people to go and attack Ebola clinics. This kind of wave of disinformation has incredibly clear effects. It causes people to do things that they probably wouldn't do if they didn't believe it. And certainly uh, conspiracy theories of, of all sorts are, uh, well, present also in America, for example. But at the same time, uh, mad ideas have been around for a very long time. If you think of all of the different theories that people have conjured for the assassination of JFK, I mean, wh why is this any different than it has ever been? I mean, you can go back further than the assassination of JFK. You can go back to the Great Fire of Rome and the various conspiracies that spread about that. So it's not new. And in terms of the number of people who believe conspiracy theories. If you look at polling, it, it hasn't necessarily hugely changed. So you've always had conspiracy theories, but I think they get out into the world much more quickly than they used to. And new ones can kind of appear in days or weeks and just spread incredibly rapidly through social media. So in that sense, uh, rather than how they're getting around, is there something different about the nature of the theories themselves? So I think if we look at particularly the United States and also some parts of Europe as well, what I think has been happening is that you have conspiracy thinking becoming a bit more like it is in Congo. That is, it's kind of coming into the political mainstream. Donald Trump was a president who basically got elected or certainly boosted himself up with conspiracy theories. You know, he had the theory that Barack Obama was not really American. He had theories that elections were stolen from him. He's carried on with that. He peddles in conspiracy theories. And you see that also in Europe, kind of politicians decrying fake vote fraud or saying that everything's a kind of plot to control people, you know. And I think the coronavirus pandemic has really helped escalate some of that. The thing about conspiracy theories is that they become dangerous when they become politicized and they're used deliberately to foment hatred and to get people to commit violence. But a lot of this falls under what we now call disinformation, right? Do we, do we yet understand what the best solution for that is? The big reaction that we have had, particularly since sort of 2016 and the panic about kind of fake news on Facebook and so on, has been an attempt to look at this as a technological problem. So Facebook, which also owns WhatsApp, employs a huge amount of moderators now, and it's done things like make it harder to forward on messages to loads of people so that you can't kind of get these like viral messages spread. The other thing that's happened, which you know you can find even in Congo, is that people are setting up debunking websites and sources of news that set out to debunk and refute those most common conspiracy theories. You can find a fact-checking website in over a hundred countries. But what we've seen about this discussion around misinformation, disinformation before is, is that even in a preponderance of, of fact-checks and raw facts and data and so on, it doesn't do much to, to take the wind out of conspiracist sales. No, I think the trouble with the kind of fact-checking model is that if you believe that everything is a part of a giant plot against you, then you might think that the fact-checking website 
is too. And the people who want to spread these kind of ideas, they have ways of getting around moderators and ways of getting their stuff to still go viral, even when the the tech companies are trying to stop them. The thing about conspiracy theories is that they sort of tap into something that's fairly fundamental, which is sort of a, a human desire to think that there is a single explanation for everything and they thrive when people don't have trust and when governments aren't trusted and in particular if you have some real conspiracies then it becomes quite easy to believe that there are far more conspiracies out there even if most of the theories are nonsense so i think the only way you can really stop conspiracy theories is by having politicians and governments that people can trust and do trust daniel thank you very much for joining us jason thank you for having me A century ago, I fell in love with the city of Beijing. And that's a bittersweet business, because few world capitals have changed so much over the past 25 years, and that includes how it sounds. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. That is one of the oldest and strangest sounds of Beijing, and I heard it on my first visit as a 25-year-old cycling around the medieval alleyways of central Beijing. It's an eerie sound. It sounds like it could be from a science fiction form, but in fact, it's hundreds of years old. It's the noise of pigeon whistles. They're tiny flutes made of either bamboo or gourds that are sewn onto the feathers of the homing pigeons that are one of the great traditions of Beijing's back alleys, or hutongs. There are very few homing pigeons left in Beijing, and even fewer master pigeon whistle makers. One of the last of the great masters is Zhang Baotong. He learned his craft as a child from a neighbour in the hutongs, and he is a link with a really old Beijing. As a child, he heard the donging of camel bells carrying coal to a railway station along the route of the old city wall that doesn't exist anymore. He keeps pigeons on a rather scruffy coop. He allowed me to join him as we went up onto the roof, and he let them out for their twice-daily flight. This was in the morning. He had to gently shoo the laziest pigeons out with a stick. But so much of old Beijing has been knocked down in the last 25 years by the kind of breakneck economic changes. And there's less and less room for scruffy things like pigeon coops in the Beijing of gleaming glass skyscrapers and shopping malls. And now, although Zhang makes these beautiful whistles, many of them are sold to collectors and will never see the sky. But in the summer, some of the older sounds still survive. There are still cricket sellers who gather wild crickets in the summer, they breed them in the winter. And although they've been driven to the far outskirts of the modern city, I did find some lurking by a motorway bridge in the south of Beijing. I met one of the last sellers, Mrs Ma. She's a migrant from outside Beijing. She's been doing this for 13 years. And she still advertises her insects the traditional way with a bundle of little narrow sticks that she clicks together, almost like an imitation of the cricket sound. Beijing used to have a whole host 
of very particular sounds that people linked to individual tradesmen. You'd have the sound that the doctor made, the medicine seller, the barber, hand cymbals, gongs, little rattles, clacking sticks, and that told people to come out and start buying. But a lot of those sounds basically disappeared when the communists took over in 1949. One of the very last tradesmen's sounds that you do still hear in Beijing is the gui. That's a series of iron plates held together with a rope that are clanked. It's like sort of axe heads strung on a cord, and they're clanked together by the knife sharpener. And when they arrive in your neighbourhood, and that still happens where I live every week, that announces the local knife sharpener has come. People come down and bring their cleavers and their cooking knives out. Where I live, the local sharpener is a guy called Craftsman Lil. He pedals a bicycle with a whetstone strapped to the back, and he's been doing this for 40 years. Mr. Liu tells me that business is still good. Even if people live in apartment buildings now rather than courtyard houses, they'll come downstairs and meet him and give him their knives. But he doesn't have an apprentice to inherit the trade from him. What youngster would study this, he asks. I'm in a bit of a reminiscent mood this summer. Maybe that's because I was 25 when I first came here 25 years ago, and that makes an anniversary. It's also because with COVID, the borders of China have been closed and I haven't left China, and mostly Beijing, for the last 20 months, which really makes you sort of feel that this place is your home in a more permanent way. Thanks to COVID, Beijing has a new soundtrack. Every public building, market, shop, even a taxi, office building you go into, you get these recorded messages telling you that you must generate a green health code on your smartphone if you want to go in. And the noise that you want to hear is your smartphone replying or past. But to be honest, that's the noise of pandemic controls and quarantines, and it's one Beijing sound I won't miss. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.